Welcome to the Guest Podcast. Brought to you by Independence Live. Independence Live was delighted to live stream the latest Nordic Horizons event, hosted by Leslie Riddick. Leslie's guests came from Denmark, Finland and Norway, as well as Scotland. And this month, the topic of conversation, not surprisingly, was the impact of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. There's also a website, nordichorizons.org, and there's a link to their crowdfunder on there if you'd like to help more of these events happen. Here's Leslie to introduce the event. Uh, welcome to this meeting of Nordic Horizons. You all know why we're here. Our, our world has changed and we're not even in the vicinity. The Russian invasion of Ukraine, when we decided to do this event, it actually was the Russian challenge to Ukraine because before the 24th of February, no one was quite clear what the level of intent was. And now we know, now we see, now every news bulletin is a horror and we're just the ones looking on. So this Nordic Horizons event takes on quite a different shape, not just because we now have a whole series of issues as, as countries, as responsible countries, which you might argue the UK is doing better or worse at as ever. Um, there's issues to compare with our Nordic neighbours, like treatment of refugees, like sanctions. But the really big, big issues at the heart of it is the whole question of security now, especially because some of the Nordic countries share a land border with Russia. Essentially, they all share a sea border in that the Baltic snakes its way up to St. Petersburg. Uh, and the security of the whole area has been called into question by uh, the events in Ukraine. We have uh, a very mixed bag, if you like, of, of Nordic countries. Sometimes when people refer to the Nordic model, there's a suggestion there's just one way of doing something. Tonight will prove as much as anything ever proves that that's not true because there are different takes currently on NATO membership. Um, there is different uh, arrangements regarding membership of the EU. There are quite different outlooks and traditions in the, the, the Nordic countries, three of whom are represented here tonight, although I would actually say that pretty much all are represented tonight because the speakers that we have, we're very lucky to have, uh, are well able to talk about the perspectives of other neighbours. So uh, let me just introduce them now, and uh, we will hear from each of them in turn. Uh, first of all, we have uh, Hans Moritzen, who's a senior researcher in foreign policy and diplomacy at the Danish Institute for International Studies. And he's uh, at the moment, he's, he's researching the increasing importance of bilateral, not multilateral diplomacy, and the, the asymmetric relations that exist between great powers and small states. Divide and rule as a great power strategy. I'm sure you're getting quite interested now. This is exactly where, where we are in so many ways. Um, we have also just had beaming into our lives with, with some relief on our part, um, Eva Neumann, who's director of the Friedhof Nansen Institute, uh, which is an independent foundation that researches international environmental uh, energy and resource management. Even has had a, an extremely distinguished career. He was a senior advisor to the Norwegian foreign ministry. Uh, he was professor of international relations at LSE, 
And that was just after he spoke at an actual physical Nordic Horizons event uh, in Edinburgh in 2013 about NATO membership. So that's almost 10 years ago. Uh, perhaps quite a lot has just changed. Um, he also wrote a, an article in a Norwegian paper just last week entitled Norway Needs a New Security Policy for Security Reasons. So I think there's something new to be hearing there. Uh, Johanna Vorelma is postdoctoral researcher at the Centre for European Studies at the University of Helsinki. Um, her primary research interest is in political language, trust, mistrust in international politics, the use of facts and political rhetoric. Um, she's chair of the Finnish International Studies Association, and she was editor of Politikasta, which is an award-winning web journal of the Finnish Political Science Association. Um, and we have from Scotland, uh, Lynn Jameson, who's professor of sociology of families and relationships at Edinburgh University. Her own research interests, globalization and personal life, the environmental and sustainable lifestyles, European identity and much more besides. And she is chair of Scottish CND. So uh, quite a lineup there. And uh, let's just start off then with, uh, with Hans Moritzen. Um, Hans, I'm just going to ask everybody this uh, same question at the beginning, which is essentially, where is your own country coming from in terms of its security policy, NATO and Russia? And has that changed in the last two weeks? Thank you for inviting me. I should say that. Uh, thank you so much. A lot of things have, have changed here. The emotional winds also are blowing among people with war in, in, in our neighborhood or, or next neighborhood. I can give you a little anecdote just to show you about the sentiments here. We have in Copenhagen, we have an observatory where people can uh, watch the, the heaven, watch the stars. And uh, in this observatory, there's a new restaurant that will open in a, in a week's time. And uh, the name of this was going to be Laika. You know, Laika was the, the dog, the dog that was sent into space before Gagarin. This was all fine until uh, a week ago. And then suddenly they had uh, published this, you know, the menu with the name Zyka on uh, and everything was, was okay, apparently. But then it wasn't okay any longer. So the director of this uh, cafe had to uh, change the name from Laika because, he's, as he said publicly, nobody will come and eat uh, anything here with, if the name has, has a, a link to Russia. So now they, they gave it the name Gemini, that's just a little anecdote to show you how things are, how the sentiments are here. In Danish politics, I can tell you that we can see that politicians, you can even what to think about them, they have a sense of timing. I mean, that that's their that, that job after all. So they have just decided about new defense spending. So now we should spend the 2% on, of GDP, not this year, but from uh, 25, I think. They've just made a, a big decision about this. And uh, a, a second thing is the, 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 the stationing of U.S. soldiers on Danish territory, also in peacetime. We had a decision from 1952 where we, uh, the Danish politicians said no to such a proposal. But now this has changed. So now, now we can have American soldiers, equipment, airplanes and so on. Uh, on Danish uh, Danish territory in peacetime. So that's also uh, a, a new thing. And 
first of June, it has just been, uh, I think it was yesterday or, or a couple of days ago, it was announced that we are going to have votes on, as you may know, we have a defense opt-out from, from the EU. If th this should be changed, we have to vote ab about it again, and that will take place on 1st of June. So, so you can see the politicians have a, a sense of how the wind is blowing. A lot of things have been uh, decided here in, in Copenhagen. Uh, just to come in, Hans, just to get yeah. the picture for people. I mm. mean, Denmark is a member of NATO. Yes. How long ago? From the beginning, from 1949. So that's, that's a quite old thing. Actually, I can tell you that in the beginning, uh, the population was very hesitant about NATO because we had been negotiated about a Nordic Defence Union, which was almost coming into existence, but uh, it fell on Norwegian uh, assistance. But but so so it took some time for people to adjust to to NATO. But today you can see the opposite: people people uh, are very fond of NATO, and very few people would like to to leave NATO. So. Okay, but this this is a, a step up, as you say. Then, since 1952, there have not been physical American bases no, or troops no, in no. in Denmark, and neither will. This is just enabling. Does that mean, though, in real reality, there will be American troops in Denmark this year? Well, not this year, but but uh, in a couple of years, that that will happen. Yeah, yeah. And it, then finally, this vote that you mentioned about the defence opt out from the EU. What, what does that mean? I mean, what, what are you not doing as a result of the opt-out that will change if, if you go in? Well, it means that we cannot participate in the EU, EU missions, military missions, but we, we can still participate in the political side of it. So, and, and as you may know, Denmark has been active militarily by, uh, in NATO and uh, on bilateral basis. So it doesn't mean so much, but Symbolically, it, it does mean something. Okay, um, right. Let's speak to Eva Neumann uh, next uh, from Norway. Eva, can you give us Norway's position on security? Russia, you have a land border. And how that's changed, perceptions have changed in the last two weeks. It has indeed. Uh, Norway is a NATO member from the very beginning, like Denmark. Uh, but we voted no to the EU twice. So we're not a member of the EU, but we're a member of the European Economic Area. So there is extensive uh, economic integration, but not so much in terms of formal political integration. There are, of course, informal stuff, and there will be uh, bilateral maneuvers with uh, EU-NATO countries like uh, Denmark and also Nether the Netherlands. So this makes Norway sort of in betwixt and between in terms of, of security policy. What has happened over the last few days is that, or the last few weeks, is that we are following Denmark, basically. Uh, that, that seems to be the deal. So, for example, we, uh, we only started sending weapons after the EU had decided to do so. The government made an about turn 24 hours after they had decided not to send weapons for, for reasons of caution and prudence. Uh, they decided to follow the EU. And uh, I think that was a political necessity. I mean, when Switzerland is sending weapons to, as a NATO country, you kind of know that it's time to step up. The, in terms of party politics, the traditional no to, to NATO party has been uh, the Socialist Party, which actually broke out of the uh, Broad Church Labour Party on this very issue in 1961. 
So they have as their foundation, no to NATO. And now they've started uh, discussing it. And they just had their, their annual conference where they did not decide to go in for NATO membership, but they did decide to start a debate, which is quite interesting in a Norwegian setting. There's also a party to the left of the socialists that sort of, sort of grew out of, of the socialists' youth wing in the, uh, in the late 60s, early 70s, and became a Maoist party and uh, have now sort of uh, toned down all that a bit and become a sort of basically a, a radical left party. And even they are talking about the need to stand up against Russia and uh, they don't want to join NATO but they have been decidedly uh, low-key about the whole thing. So um, if nothing else, then Putin has certainly managed to galvanize the Norwegian people. On a personal note, I may add that I wrote an op-ed the day after this started and said that we should think through whether we wanted to send weapons or not, because although it would be a very good thing to strengthen Ukrainian resistance and send a message uh, against the aggressor, it would also mean that Ukraine would uh, be encouraged and we should stand by that encouragement and not so that it wouldn't be a fair weather, fair weather friend thing to do. And I was inundated with my mails from people I did not know or people I'd met 20 or 30 years ago saying, this is really disappointing and how can you? We must stand up and uh, long live Ukraine and the whole caboodle. I've, I haven't experienced that, for, that before. So um, there's a groundswell in the country on behalf of Ukraine, which I find to be very interesting indeed. So to be clear then, was your argument that Norway should be careful about handing in weapons to keep a war going that Ukraine looks likely to lose? I pointed to the possibility that that might actually uh, heighten the human suffering, but uh, also that uh, if we were with other countries in sending uh, military support, it would be a different situation. The reason why I did that was because of the sort of immediate sort of gung-ho, uh, we've got the Gatlin guns reaction of the Norwegian uh, people to this, which, which is a good thing in the sense that people want to stand up for the principles. But it's always a good thing to think through the actual long-term consequences of what you do. And I felt that uh, there was little debate on the actual consequences of sending weapons. So it was an interesting experiment for me as, as a rather hawkish security person <laughs> to do. You know, Right. And then as, as regards Norway, you do have a land border with Russia. Uh, we have a 196 kilometer long land border in the north. And it used to be the only place where NATO and Russia squared off direct. But that's not the case anymore, because with Russian forces in Belarus, it also means that, uh, that there is a direct confrontation along the so-called Suvalka Gap, stretching from Kaliningrad in the left and uh, along the Polish-Belarus border. So we're not alone in, in having that confrontation anymore, but we used to be. D does it give you any extra cause for concern, or does that, that particular border look like the least of Russia's worries at the moment? At the moment, yes. But the job of a security analyst is not only to think through what happens tomorrow, it's also to think through the consequences a year down the line, and then also the accumulated consequences. That's important. What Norway has been trying to do has been to, uh, to uh, 
to do deterrence through NATO, but also to, uh, like Denmark, to, to do certain self, to, to, to put the country under certain self restrictions. For example, we don't allow military maneuvers close to the border in East Finnmark, that is the part of the country closest to Russia. We stay off that. We haven't had our troops stationed permanently on, on Norwegian soil, like the Danes, etc. These things now seem decidedly wobbly. And they've all sort of, particularly the sort of permanent presence has already been sort of undermined. And uh, again, there's the galvanization of Norwegian security policy behind NATO as a direct result of all this. And one last question for the minute, Eva. Um, there used to be, I understand the case, that nuclear submarines, NATO submarines, didn't come into Norwegian ports. It was, a, it was a don't ask, don't tell kind of situations. We don't know whether that actually happened because we didn't, we didn't uh, actually ask for, for declarations about it. But we made it clear that our policy was that submarines shouldn't come if they carried nuclear weapons. Uh, so whether or not it happened, we don't really know. So it is a very, very Norwegian thing to do, actually, to say, no, 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 you shouldn't do it, but not verifying. Mm-hmm. But then did that change with the period of conservative government so that actually it was openly okay for for nuclear submarines to dock? Like, has that situation now officially changed? It's unclear. Let's just put it at that. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, let's speak to Johanna Vorelma. Johanna, hello. Yes, hello. Now... Obviously, you're the country with the biggest challenge uh, with that long, long border with Russia, with your own history as well of of almost so much of it must feel like a kind of, well, not deja vu for any of us because we weren't alive in the 1940s, um, or at least we weren't in in the active war phase that we had uh, in, in Finland. But can you just give us a little bit of your history and how Finlandization has come about, a, a, a catch word, if you like, that people may understand? Uh, yes, thank you. Uh, well, certainly here in Finland, the war has caused, you can say, shockwaves across the country. Um, you mentioned Finland has a long border with Russia, 1,340 kilometers. Most of Finns know that. That figure by heart. Um, the history has been very sort of. There has been a lot of aggression from from Russia over the centuries. Um, there have been several occasions. Um, most recently, during the Second World War, when the Soviet Union launched a war, actually very similar to what we see now in Ukraine. And there's been a lot of comparison between the Winter War and and this. Uh, and this attack, and there are certainly some similarities, also also differences. During the Cold War, as you mentioned, Finland was forced, you can say, to choose the policy of neutrality. It was a success story in many ways compared to other neighbours of Russia that lost their sovereignty. Uh, but what the, the price Finland paid was what is called Finlandization, meaning Finland had to compromise on its sovereignty had to let the Soviet Union to sort of implicitly and also explicitly influence its politics and society. So you can say the, the Cold War 
there's you know there's some traumas still still in in Finnish society. Actually, recently there has been a, a very widely watched documentary on on the Cold War period, and it's something that is, is has been discussed more uh, more recently. And this was just before the the war started. If I say a couple of words about the about Finland's security policy, I mean first of all, currently or you can say before the war, before Russia's attack, there were four principles that really guided Finland's foreign and security policy. First of all, close cooperation with with Finland's Western partners, including NATO, other Nordic countries. Finland is not a member of NATO. And this is something that has been an important principle in the Finnish policy. Secondly, credible defense capabilities, including general conscription. Thirdly, active involvement in multilateral arrangements, such as the UN, other international organizations, and fourthly, good relations with Russia. And now clearly the fourth principle, good relations with Russia, this is out of question. There's really, it's very difficult to see that there there would be a return for a long time which actually means that Finland now needs to really rethink its its basic principles and currently i mean there has been a sig- significant impact on the public opinion also policy discussions Finns have really sort of you can say historically turned actually in favor of joining nato this has been a major shift in in the polls uh, there was one poll Uh, just about two, three weeks before the before the war started, and then another one two weeks later, and there had been a massive shift in uh, in favor of of NATO. So now, uh, this is something that I mean, the public opinion is is uh, is now looking actually similar to to Sweden. There has been a similar change. There are also two citizens' initiatives on NATO membership that have gained enough signatories to pass on to Parliament. And this is something that they have to now take into Parliament discussion. The first one is demanding a referendum on NATO membership. The second one demands that Finland uh, joins NATO without any, any referendum. Uh, so really, I mean, citizens in Finland are sort of forcing politicians take a stance because this is something that there has been a very hesitant very passive discussion on NATO so all of a sudden we see a very active very open discussion on on NATO so far if you look at the political landscape there are only two parties the coalition party which is the center right party in Finland Uh, part of the EPP in in the European Parliament. It's uh, one of the biggest parties in Finland. It has been a pro-NATO party for a long time. And also the Swedish People's Party, which is a smaller party, but it's in the government currently, unlike the coalition party that is in the opposition. The Swedish People's Party is also openly uh, form NATO membership. It looks like maybe the Green Party might be sort of changing their policy and might actually turn pro-NATO. There have been a number of uh, green politicians here in Finland openly uh, calling for NATO membership. So this is something that is currently shifting. Also, there has been a widely shared sort of uh, consensus that the defense budget 
needs to be increased. Similar thing as in many other European countries. Um, after some serious hesitation, Finland did make a policy shift to send armament to Ukraine. This was something, Finland was one of the last states to actually make this decision. And there was a lot of public pressure here in Finland to, you know, to do that. Many were saying like, oh, we can't be the one who, who doesn't do it. So there was a lot of public pressure. And then finally, Finland did make this, this decision. But this is a historic decision because traditionally Finland is not, you know, this is even, it's in the government program that there's no armament sent to, to conflict areas. Major Finnish firms have now withdrawn all businesses in Russia. Sanctions are likely to hit Finnish economy perhaps harder than some other countries because there are a lot of investments in, in Russia. Many Finnish firms have in investments. There's a very significant nuclear project, Rosatom-backed nuclear project that has been halted. Um, this is something that was a a big decision here, a bit similar to Nord Stream, the second Nord Stream project. So this is something that is now is not moving forward. Um, and also a lot of active diplomacy taking place between Finland and its Western partners. For example, President Minister was visiting uh, Washington a couple of days ago. He met Biden there. There was a lot of sort of publicity for that that meeting and tomorrow we just got news that he is uh, the president minister is going to call Putin and he's now saying that we actually need to continue having dialogue with Russia despite the situation there's something that has to be done I have to know that there has been sort of his uh, minister has been called a Putin whisperer or someone who knows Putin very well in Finland, this is something that uh, has been perhaps a bit challenged, this idea that um, he or some other Finnish politicians would have a special knowledge about, about Putin or, or Russia. And, and perhaps this has been sort of overestimated. Perhaps you can say that it's been, the, you know, there's been wishful thinking about uh, Russia's political development in Finland for a long time. And now I, I think many are saying that in Finland, politicians were not that knowledgeable. They were more sort of optimistic about uh, Russia becoming more democratic and, um, and sort of turning in a different direction. Now, the very big question here is Finland's NATO membership. Some experts in Finland are saying that there are now active preparations taking place to start the negotiations. They are saying that first, what needs to be done is to secure. Uh, security guarantees uh, for the application period, because it's very likely that Russia would react aggressively to the announcement that Finland is applying. Other experts are predicting that Finland is simply strengthening its military cooperation with NATO and other Nordic countries instead of actually um, seeking membership. Uh, my take on the current situation is that it's more about strengthening cooperation in the area of security with, with its partners, but not actually actively uh, preparing for, for a membership. But this is something that is now being very, very actively debated here. And I mean, lastly, I mean, there's a, you can say that there's a consensus here in Finland that if Finland was to join NATO, it would have to happen together with Sweden. 
And this is something that is also has been in the polls. When Finns are asked, they would say that, yes, if Finland and Sweden join together, then um, you know, there's higher um, percentage uh, for applying uh, NATO membership. Right. There's so much in there. Johanna, just one thing on the, the two people's petitions or whatever that, have, uh, that are calling for NATO membership. Um, I see that there's already 22 of these in the pipeline in the Finnish parliament, but there's a big delay because of there are many of these citizens' ideas that are sitting before those two would be considered. And the thinking is that it might not be considered in your parliament before the elections next year. Yes, that's right. And this is something, the Citizens Initiative, it's something that was introduced not that long ago. It has been in place perhaps um, 10 years and is meant to give more sort of agenda power to, to citizens. And one of the problems with this institution is that if the parliament doesn't have enough time to, um, to take that in, uh, into uh, the parliament discussion, then it, just, it, it will not be sort of uh, considered. And then when the next parliament comes in, it would have to be done again. So it's very likely, you are right, because it's only about a year left before the next election. It, it's very likely that, or it's possible that they, they, you know, there's not enough time. This is something that has, I mean, it's, it has, it has been criticism that it, it can also be used sort of, there, has been, there can be, exactly, there can be some political motives also to you know to um sort but, of... but you would you would imagine that if if even britain can get to the stage of sanctioning roman abramovich and freezing chelsea as a club and actually doing something perhaps finland could just pull up that that referendum quicker than the other issues uh, i'm not suggesting it's a good idea for by the way but presumably the party, the National Coalition Party, the one that supports NATO, will only benefit in the polls next year if, if voters think we couldn't even get a debate about joining NATO. It's very likely that the next election will be NATO election. So there will be one major issue on the agenda, and it's the, um, the NATO membership. I actually, when it comes to the referendum on, on NATO membership, I sort of consider that as not a very good idea for, for two main reasons. I mean, first of all, it's very likely that there would be some information warfare coming from, from Russia trying to influence the, the public discussion here in, in Finland. And it's one of those very delicate topics um, to, to actually have a referendum. So I would rather have a part, if Finland wants to join, it would have to um, happen through uh, parliament, sort of taking that decision through a representative democracy. Second point is that I'm not sure how knowledgeable we as citizens can be about all those pros and cons about uh, Finland joining NATO. I mean, this is a lot about identity, as we, we all understand it is not only about security, it's all also about the very long sort of uh, question about uh, the identity in, in Finland as, as being non-aligned militarily. 
So I sort of I'm a bit skeptical about about having a, a referendum, but I think the Finnish politicians in different parties they are now forced to actually have a active discussion, regardless of whether the citizens' initiatives they um, they pass pass to the um, discussion in in the parliament. Just finally, you you sound very calm. <laughs> I mean, there's no reason you shouldn't be. But of all the countries that's sitting, you know, the Nordic countries that's sitting very close to Russia and the careful way you're thinking through how to make a change that would be seismic in your own country's history and and perhaps even question the wisdom of, of a non-aligned policy, which, as you say, has been successful for Finland, it would seem, for so many decades. It's like a bit of your identity could be ready to change completely. Maybe the Finns are very calm people. Uh, you know, it feels like so much is changing and yet there's no sort of feeling of urgency or worry or fear. Well, it's interesting. Now when I'm listening to the political leadership in, in Finland, the main message that they are delivering is to say, we have to remain calm. We have to remain very sort of balanced, not to start panicking, not to make any decisions sort of too emotionally. So I, I I think they sort of find it very, very important to to sort of deliver this message over and over again. This is the message from Prime Minister Sanna Marin, who's actually uh, the youngest prime minister in uh, in the in, in Finnish history at the moment. She's two years younger than I am. Um, and uh, and in in her sort of rhetoric, she con- continues to, to uh, deliver this message, same with the, with the president. So there are, you know, the, the, the question of, you know, the, the importance of remaining calm is something that is, <laughs> is really, I think it almost forms a big part of the discussion at the moment. Like, let's stay calm and let's just have a rational discussion on, on whether, whether we want to, you know, what is the best uh, best way forward? Uh, when when the president was talking about his visit to Washington and when he visited um, Biden, he was actually being very cryptic about what they what they talked during their meeting. So many were asking, so was it about preparing for NATO membership? And he was just sort of bypassing the question and not sort of saying anything really is something very, very difficult to, to actually interpret. So that's mm. why there's a lot of speculation now, what is happening sort of backstage and what is being said said out loud. Okay. Um, so I, I'm just going to bring the other two speakers in briefly just to think about your situation, particularly in Finland. But I know this might be a bit difficult for you. Do you think Finland should join NATO? Before the war, I that the, the current arrangement is good for the stability of, of the wider region. Now I'm sort of sort of I'm I haven't made up my mind yet, but I have I, my thinking has changed. And the reason why my thinking has changed is that my sort of image or my understanding of Russia's sort of actions and, and the willingness to, to act the way it does has really changed. Mm-hmm. So, okay. um, so this is something, but I have to say that my, I would also 
consider the um, the deepening and deepening of of cooperation with uh, with NATO as a as also an adequate uh, solution. Okay, well, just just briefly, Eva and uh, and Hans, what do you think Finland and Sweden should or will do? Eva first. I think. You know, we should keep in mind what what President Ninister of Finland did immediately upon Putin trying to uh, talk about Sweden and and uh, and Finland not joining NATO. When Ninister said that, you know, this is entirely up to Finland. So uh, we, the rest of us, may have opinions, but it's extremely important to keep in mind that this is actually a sovereign decision. But I'm a Russian speaker. I've been sort of researching Russia for almost forty years now. I think we are back to a situation of repression that is such that the situation is is internally, it's in a couple of ways worse than it was during the Cold War. I lived for the first time in Russia in 1980. And then there, for example, if you were a member of the Russian Academy of Science, of the Soviet Academy of Sciences, you were fairly safe. You, you, even Sakharov, when he was in, interred, he was treated with respect. The way academia is being pressured into signing up for the war now is worse in my book than than things were when I lived there. So uh, so uh, with that shadow looming, I would say that Sweden and Finland's uh, taking the final step is long overdue. Uh, no, not long overdue, but is overdue once this war is on. And I must also point out that um, just like Norway cannot eke any closer to the EU without being full members, one could argue that Sweden and Finland cannot eke any closer to NATO without actually becoming full members. So that would be my life. Hans? If it's the same question, there's a Swedish Swedish saying that that says that sit sit down and sit sit still in the boat when the wind is blowing. And uh, I think that is the line that, that both Swedish and Finnish politicians will uh, follow and I can see, I can actually see the wisdom in that. Uh, so so uh, you know Sweden and Finland have decided to go hand in hand, as I think Johanna mentioned that also, which is a very wise thing. That if they join NATO at at all, they will do it hand in hand, because you cannot have one of them joining and the other not joining, because that would would give some unintended uh, consequences that we can take later perhaps. But but uh, yeah, I would say sit sit down in the boat uh, just for the time being. Okay, well, let's bring Lynn Jameson in at this point. What do you make of what you're hearing here? Well, of course, I am. I'm a chairperson of the campaign for nuclear disarmament, and uh, our position is that we want Britain to give up its nuclear weapons uh, as a part of trying to get rid of nuclear weapons for from the world and also and in, so we imagine if we ever become an independent Scotland it will be a nuclear uh, free Scotland it will not be nuclear armed and we would also advocate them not being in NATO so I can understand why this is now a debate in Finland and Norway are thinking about it differently too and Finland and Sweden are thinking about joining NATO. I can understand why it's like this, but I would just point out that NATO is still badged as a, a nuclear armed state that has not renounced the first strike use of nuclear weapons. And that I think from our perspective is 
although there's absolutely no forgiving what's happened, and I'm certainly not making any excuses for Putin or trying to imagine that he's in any way reasonable or rational, the way that NATO has come closer to his borders um, is part of the backdrop of the tension and the continued construction after the end of the Cold War of uh, an alliance that was as if in opposition to Russia in a sense that he can now regurgitate back in his rhetoric um, and excuses, it hasn't been helpful. So um, the British nuclear weapons are in no sense independent. We get our missiles from the United States. The design of the warhead has to be in tandem with their design. The submarines that carry them have to be built around the missiles. The targeting is arguably possibly not completely independent, and it's a weapon system that is assigned to NATO. Um, so, for, you know, we are, for all of those reasons, no fan of NATO. And, I mean, when you're hearing, however, what's, what's the, the changes in thinking that are happening just in the space of two weeks, um, is there anything that, that has made you personally slightly stop in your tracks over the last two weeks about, about your position on this? No, because what this illustrates to me, above all, is how much more dangerous nuclear weapons make the world um, and how close we now are to a very dangerous situation. It makes me feel strong, more strongly than ever that you know, we have a treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons. We have a, a nuclear... We're in a, we, I live in a nuclear state that hosts nuclear weapons uh, that has been... Uh, member of the non-proliferation treaty for decades and done nothing but modernize its nuclear weapons and develop them further. It's already done untold harm. If you think about the harms that were caused by the nuclear tests, the harms that are caused by uranium mining, um, we've harmed people all over the world already. We all live with more cancers because of the nuclear tests. We can't just carry on with this rhetoric and actions of seeing more and more and more. We have to um, go in a different direction. Okay, um, Eva, have you got a view on this? Because, I mean, in a way, Norway relies on the nuclear deterrence of other countries, maybe principally Britain. CND's position has been uh, admirably stable uh, during the years that I've followed politics from the sort of early, nine, early 1980s and the question of, uh, of mid-range, the deployment of mid-range uh, weapons in Europe. And I think it's a principled position and uh, I have no comment, really. Okay, and just, just to complete this week, does Johanna or Hans have a view on this? Um, if I sort of reflect on, on why there has been a very stable resistance in, in Finland towards NATO membership. I mean, this is part of the discussion. I mean, there there has been a very strong um, sort of tendency to uh, to see that uh, the um, the NATO membership would bring with it uh, the question of nuclear uh, sort of powers and 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 the question of sort of strengthening this this logic of of um uh armament and there there has been a strong sort of peace um 
sort of thinking in uh, in that resistance. Now, I mean, there has been a very strong sort of shift in this, and we actually we have a research project on on militarism and democracy currently, um, and. And my sort of, I'm I'm thinking that what we see at the moment, not only in Finland but elsewhere in Europe, is actually the opposite of of this of sort of understanding the the risks involved. We see an increase in militaristic thinking, and I think this is something that obviously we would have to also um, have have very critical discussion about at the moment. But it's very difficult. I think that now the uh, now the mood is uh, is going in a different direction, and and I'm also a bit worried about this. About sort of, we just had a discussion on Monday evening in um, uh, here in in Helsinki, where one of my colleagues he was um, he's a professor in world politics, and he said he is sort of um, very worried about sort of we are starting a, a, a third world war. And you know that will involve or include nuclear weapons, and um, so I mean this discussion is is on at the moment. Also, um, I I'm not sure how to. I mean these are very big questions and something something definitely uh, that we need to to keep right. on. Okay, so. um, thank you. Um, I'm seeing lots of questions coming in here. Um, I'm just working perhaps from the start, which I don't know if that's the right way around, but it's where it's going. John Bryden, are you still with us? Yeah, I asked a question about, there hasn't been much talk about the European defence initiatives, but actually uh, on 1st July, Denmark will vote on whether to join these. And my impression is that there is more discussion now about Europe having an, its own defence initiative. We don't know what shape that will take, but we know there are a couple. Of, there's a European Defence Fund, and there are European Defence Agency, and there is what you might call an emerging defence policy, stimulated, of course, by the present circumstances. So, I wanted to ask the panel: Do they think that is a, a realistic uh, idea to take forward in future? as an alternative to a nuclear NATO. And can I just lob in that there is also Nordefco, which is a Indeed. joint defence yeah. union between the Nordic countries already. So we could any of those be beefed up? I can just note here that the Finnish policy has been in, in recent years, especially during Minister's presidency, has been precisely to strengthen European defence uh, capabilities and this has been a it has been seen as an alternative to NATO membership. He's been talking about these numerous occasions, uh, but realistically, at least before the current situation, this has not been moving moving really forward. So I don't think it has been a, a credible alternative. Now, um, John mentioned that uh, an alternative to nuclear NATO. I mean, of course. It also involves nuclear uh, states. I mean, if we talk about uh, EU cooperation, so I mean, this is something that I don't see that it would really go forward to such an uh, such an extent that it would really, at this point, provide an alternative. 
Why? Because most of the EU countries are already NATO members. So um, I I don't really at the moment, I don't see it as an as a credible alternative. But from the Finnish perspective, this is something that that would be the um, the best option to go go forward with with the EU. You see, seen from Norway, I mean there is historical past dependence here. Uh Norway's the, the lesson that Norway took away from it being occupied by the Nazis for five years during the Second World War was A, neutrality doesn't work, and B, Sweden is not necessarily to be trusted on military policy. Sweden, as a neutral country, was supposed to not let, uh, let uh, foreign military personnel through, but there were two million individual troop exports in and out from from Germany and Denmark via Sweden to Norway during the Second World War, and Sweden pretended not to notice. Now, I'm not really sort of revving up a big attack on Sweden here, because in order to actually get by with the neutrality, they had to, to, to look the other way. But it tells you something about the viability of Nordics pulling together when it comes to defense policy. It's not going to happen. My worry is very different. My worry is that in three or seven years, we will have an American president, the foreign Uh, policy agenda of of whom we know nothing about. It may be an isolationist, maybe a gung ho militarist. What's happening inside the Republican Party is 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 leaving democratic politics behind. And with that kind of situation on our hands, the way to go is to strengthen EU defense policy. And it's such a pity that that uh, Britain left because this is where Britain would really had have had something to offer Europe. So uh, there you have my sort of. Uh, Happening, as it were. Mm-hmm. Right, and what a sobering happening that is. I mean, that's right enough because if you're if you're thinking about permanent changes, for example, for Finland or Sweden into NATO membership, you are accepting that the lead power of that grouping is the United States, which could well have President Trump back in five years' time. Horrific thought, but but very possible. Also, very sobering, actually. Mm-hmm. But of course, uh, that that's a good point. That that uh, with the U.S. is so volatile, and you you don't know who, who's uh, who's in charge next time. Perhaps it's the same uh, the same guy as last time. Uh, so so uh, we don't know that. And we also saw that even during uh, Biden, the, there was a lack of consultation between the U.S. and the Europeans in connection with Kabul, the, the Kabul debacle. So, so uh, of course, it's a good thing with with uh, European defense, but it 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 takes long, long time to to develop. And uh, but now you heard the the the, the German the German. Uh, Chancellor uh, Scholz, who who made an, a significant speech last week, so uh, it may be it may, may be developing, but it takes it takes long time. And uh, the the thing about non-nuclear, yeah, but you all you, the, the UK and the French ha- have nuclear weapons, so, so I mean, okay, um, John Brighton, do you want to just come back and have you got the, what's your own thoughts on that? Your own question. I think we we are at a moment when we should develop a European defense initiative. I mean, when Mr. Trump was in America, people were very nervous about NATO. They've forgotten about that now. But as you said, it, it uh, is likely to come back at some point. We don't know when, but it is likely to come back. And it will come back more and more because 
they have stopped feeling so responsible for the Europe, European situation and they want to devolve responsibility to us. And indeed, they were part of the force behind the original defence policy in the 1950s, if I remember. America was actually pushing Europe. It failed at that time. I think that Eastern Europe is particularly interested in this, and we we know the border countries are interested in it. So I think we're uh, at a moment when that could see some light of day. Right, that's that's a fascinating thought. Um, and we've got another question. How does all of this affect the position of the Åland Islands, which is an archipelago that sits between Sweden and Finland? It's largely Swedish speaking, but it's owned by Finland. Also, what's the situation with Svalbard? Uh, I don't know if Johanna knows something about this. I mean, I wouldn't imagine is it directly there's any implication for the Åland Islands, except that the whole Baltic security is now, you know, you're sitting with a sea that leads to a country with which, well, you're not at war, but which has embarked on this war with Ukraine. Does that change the, the, the nature of the Baltic? Just a thought as well, because earlier um, we heard from Eva, who was talking about Kaliningrad, which was a place on the map I had no understanding of till I looked at the map. Um, and saw this exclave. It's like a little outpost of, of Russian control that sits on the Baltic between Lithuania and Poland, I think. Um, and there was a, a commentary here in Britain that a possible endgame or purpose or strategy of President Putin was to try to create a corridor between Kaliningrad and Ukraine, um, which again places a lot of importance on the Baltic because Kaliningrad is Russia's only ice-free port. So it seems a lot comes back to the Baltic and, and safety there. Uh, the question of uh, the Orland Islands, this is something, it's the, the islands, they are demilitarized, and this is something that, I mean, Finland is um, responsible for defending the islands, but militarily as well in, uh, in the case of attack. But the fact is that they are... Um, Demilitarized, and this is something. This you can say a. Some people here, some experts, they call it a paradox. I mean, how can you actually defend a demilitarized island when you can't really increase military uh, presence on the island the same way as we saw with Gotland and and Sweden? So um, it's uh, it's not really changing in in that sense. I mean, this is it's a legislative issue and Finland at the moment is not willing to sort of open the, the question of, of Orland Island. But from the from the perspective of the whole region, we are talking about strategically a very important um, area um, and something that we actually might have more sort of focus on in the coming years if the tensions uh, tension is um, is increasing more more in the region. If, if you look at the map, there's Kaliningrad, and then there's Belarus, White Russia, and then there's, then there's Poland. So, uh, and and uh, next to Kaliningrad, you will have the Baltic states. And the, uh, the border, where Kalin, the, the border stretching from where Kaliningrad ends and to where, and, and along that, you know, the border between Belarus and Poland, that is called the Suvalki Line. And uh, it's the new border between uh, Russian armed forces and NATO forces. So uh, 
if Russia made a corridor through that, it would link Kaliningrad to the rest of, well, to, to Belarus, which is effectively under Russian military control. And it would also cut off Poland from the Baltics, so it would make uh, NATO territory non-contiguous, which would be a large challenge in terms of tactics and strategy. So it, that would be an obvious, an obvious sort of Russian thing to do. Um, so the Suvalka gap, for those of us who've lived for some years, we will, we will recall the Fulda gap in Germany, which was sort of central sort of front line between uh, the Warsaw Pact and NATO. Now the Suvalka gap uh, has become the direct uh, line of confrontation between military forces on either side. So it's, it's a place to watch. It's not necessarily the place to watch, but it's a place to watch. That's the basic military logic. Um, I wonder if you think, though, I mean, we're looking at what's happening at the moment. It, it would seem that, that the Russian advances are extremely slow or grinding to a halt in some places. Now, I appreciate everyone has an emotional investment in hoping somehow that this all goes wrong and that uh, they have really, you know, that the reports of the people deserting, of lack of good military planning, all of these things just bring Russia grinding to a halt. And I suppose people look at the size of Ukraine and think, how can any army occupy 44 million people worth of a massive physical country? Mm. And then you think, really, could you then think that Russia would try to reoccupy Estonia or Lithuania? I mean, is, is, is any of these, this, does this seem to you to be viable? Well, we're now in the realm of speculation. So that's sort of the entrance ticket here. And I will answer your question on that basis and that basis alone. So Russia is now deployed so heavily that they cannot stop this without getting something back. The Crimea, the uh, so-called People's Republics, probably a chunk of territory that would link those two together along the, uh, the Black Sea line. The weaknesses that we seem are basically due to two factors, I think. One is that uh, there is very sort of little, what you call interoperability. That means connections between land forces and air forces, which is an historical weakness of Russian military forces. We saw the same during the Georgian War in 2008. The other one is that uh, rumor has it, this is again uncertain, Rumor has it that uh, maybe a third of the Russian troops in Ukraine are, are, are actually conscripted, which is interesting because it goes against Russian, Russia's own laws, which says that you can't send conscripts abroad. So rumor has it that these people have been uh, made to sign six-month contracts before going, and that most of them, maybe all, had no idea what they were actually going to be used for. So small wonder if that would explain the very low morale of these troops. Right? A third problem is that Russia has a doctrinal way of looking at things, which means that when a conflict doesn't really go all that well, it's upgraded from local to regional, and the answer then is to bomb more. So the logic is a very sort of, it's a tankist logic. You know, the more, the more it takes to win, the more you will bomb, basically. So the US in the Vietnam, in, in Vietnam, if you like, which is not exactly doing any good. Uh, so there are a number of, of reasons why these operations are being slowed down. The problem is that they may not actually stop the fighting because it may only make Putin keener on actually finishing what he's started. So however uh, low the morale, however 
bad the, the war, actual war fighting, they have a hell of a lot of troops. Now, to your last thing about occupation, plan A seems to be used if they're going for occupation, which is a, a big if, but if they go for occupation, that seems to be to send in the National Guard, which is different kinds of paramilitary police forces, 360,000 of, of, of them, and use those. So Russia would be very thinly spread, yes. So they would be taken up with all this. But so rationality would dictate that one would hold one's forces. However, there is also the military logic that you start doing side sideshows. Again, in Vietnam, it was Cambodia. Right? And the one of the places to look for first then would be Moldova, uh, Georgia, of course, and only then you would start sort of the NATO thing. But uh, I think the NATO deterrence factor is so heavy that uh, that's a long way off. Sorry for being a bit technical and long there. No, that was very, very clear. Was it the right thing for Estonia to do, for example, all the Baltic republics to join NATO in many ways? We're hearing earlier, some think that's the excuse, if you like, or that that's the enlargement, the encroachment across to the east of Europe that gives some sort of spurious vindication to what Putin thinks he's doing? In hindsight, it, it, it was a good thing. The, the sad thing is that, that Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania have turned their back to, to Russia after gaining membership, because the idea was, before they, 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 they came so far, the idea was that if they got the, the security of NATO, they could be more open and, uh, and more positive towards Russia. You can always say who is the blame here. But so, so uh, that, that, that's one thing. I would also mention in connection with the Baltic countries, uh, to add to what Eva said about uh, the, Suvalkic, the Suvalkic gap, there's also the island of uh, the Gotland, which is very important for the Baltic countries. Because if the, the Suvalkic gap is cut off, then the only way that, that NATO can can assist the Baltic countries is by having Gotland, which is Swedish, as you all know. So, so and that could also, in the worst case, that could also tempt Russia to take all oh, that, that. Let's take Gotland, so NATO doesn't take it. So you see, there is a tense situation about Gotland, and we saw that a couple of weeks ago when the Swedes uh, fortified Gotland a bit. Uh, so all these things are connected. Um, I see another question. What about the situation with the Arctic and the Arctic Council? Um, in fact, I think the Arctic Council has just ceased as suspended operations because of Russia's presence on the council. Um, so it's not clear what what will, well what can actually immediately happen there. And seeing other questions, I just wonder if anyone wants to come on and ask them. So I don't want to put anyone on the spot. Do I respond to yes. the Arctic thing, Leslie? Yeah, please. Um, so. It has ceased operations, but um, and and the, the chairmanship is for the time being Russian. Uh, but the Arctic Council, uh, I think, a number of countries and certainly Norway will keep on planning for the reopening of the Arctic Council because it's too important and low key to to be given up. Uh, so uh, so uh, watch that space. Uh, th there is another. Interesting organization in the in the high north, which is the Barents Sea region and uh, the Barents Euro Atlantic region, where uh, Euro Arctic region, where Russia, Norway, Finland, and and uh, and Sweden are cooperating not only on this on a on a on a state to state level, but also on the local level. 
the basic idea when this was set up in the uh, 1990s was exactly to try and insulate uh, regional politics from state to state politics. And that worked during the Kosovo crisis in 1999. But then with Putin coming in and centralizing the country, it didn't work so well more. But uh, Norway still has quite an investment in citizen to citizen relations in the high north. So that will not be given up easily. I just wanted to say about the Baltics. We we just discussed it before the, the Arctic issue. And I just wanted to, I mean, I'd be following the discussion in, um, especially in Estonia, because there has been sort of a tense relationship in, I mean, tense uh, discussion between or sort of considering uh, the Finnish policy on NATO membership and Estonian policy. There's been a bit of sort of this, uh, I told you so, so type of um, reaction now uh, after the after Russia launched the attack, Estonian politicians have been saying that Finland has been a bit sort of uh, sort of saying that Estonians are are overreacting uh, and they are sort of too almost they just have you know too many fears about Russia and and those are perhaps sort of overestimated. Now, when you look at the situation in the Baltic countries, the fact that they joined when they did. I mean, now the window of, of opportunity for them would not be open uh, the same way. So I would say that decision at the time to join was definitely the right one. It's a very different situation for them than for Finland and Sweden because we uh, they have a different history with with uh, being sort of under uh, the Soviet Union. Um, now them following what is happening in uh, in Ukraine, they would have a very very insecure position, and I would say that I mean if we talk about land border between Finland and Russia, their position it's something it would it would be very uh, very different. So uh, you know the decision at the time for them uh, they uh, they definitely I think at the time they uh, they sort of saw saw very clearly how they can best secure their uh, their their sovereignty. I made a small little film about Estonia. Uh, was it last year or the year before? 20, well, 2020. And uh, we were there for their Independence Day, which is 24th of February. Everyone gets up at 6.30 in the morning. I mean, they're in the middle of Tallinn at 6.30. So they're up at 5 a.m. to get there, to see their flag being, being raised at the crack of dawn. And I mean, we were quite surprised to see that that very somber, but kind of, you know, celebratory mood was the centerpiece of it was a military march through of tanks from NATO right through the center of Tallinn. And of course, to sort of Scottish eyes, perhaps that looked a little incongruous. And we spoke to lots of the soldiers who were who were there, lots of the young uh, Estonians. And certainly their their perspective was that they joined NATO before they joined the European Union, I think just by three months, but still it was so much, so very important for them. And it might be hard for people who are further west to appreciate that that situation that you describe. I have a question here from Scotty, um, who says there are reports President Zelensky has cooled on NATO membership. Let's just discuss this, what this potential best scenario is, I mean, I know this is, a, in a sense, a ludicrous conversation because we're sitting with a country that's being pulverized as we speak. And yet, 
what is the best possible outcome for Ukraine? It's not as if NATO is actually motoring towards wanting Ukraine to be a member. Um, so Scotty is asking, do you think if, if Zelensky is not trying to become a NATO member, would that be enough for Putin? Would it also cool Finland and Sweden's interest in joining? Hans had his hand up. Yeah, I think uh, that's of course a difficult, difficult question. But uh, if if you ask it, I, I would say the the best solution would be a Swedification, uh, like uh, all Finlandization. But but um, when I say Swedification, I mean uh, Sweden's decision in 1949 when they were offered NATO membership, just like Norway and Denmark. Then the Swedes said no, thank you, because. If if Sweden had joined, then two days later, Finland would have got a letter from Moscow saying inviting them to join a, a, a military alliance with with the Soviet Union, and then you would have a border down the Bosnian Gulf and the the Baltic Sea, a direct border between Sweden and 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 uh, the Soviet forces. So that was actually a wise a wise decision by Sweden to stay neutral. Uh, and uh, one one could want that, that one could wish that that Ukraine had 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 uh, decided for such a solution, but uh, it, but that would also require, of course, that the Russians on their side should stop exercising with one hundred thousand soldiers on the other side of the border. So it would be a quick pro forward course. Uh, but that would ideally be be the best solution. But it it may be uh, it may be after the war events going on now, it may be it may be impossible. And, and but however, it didn't look as if whether Ukraine wanted to join NATO. I mean, either it didn't look as if NATO wanted Ukraine. Definitely not. Um, there was a long debate on 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 Georgia in two thousand and eight, and Georgia was lobbying heftily for NATO membership, and uh, it didn't happen. Russia was militarily active then as well. We have a bit of a problem here because uh, the, the Western support is being offered on the principle of the world order that uh, sovereign states should have their own say in their own, uh, should have the final say in their own affairs and that borders should actually not be violated. And uh, this conflict, I have a hard time seeing this conflict being settled or being diffused uh, without territory changing hands, which means that the actual principle on which the whole thing is predicated is actually in principle up for grabs. That will be the tough one. And uh, seeing the Ukrainians um, sign away uh, the, uh, the two Donbass so-called People's Republics in their present form, or even with, sort of, with, with them sort of actually covering the whole counties, and pr probably even more territory will be extremely, that will be tough going. So, uh, so that's, that's, that's the thing. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, there was a question from someone about uh, how to amplify, um, sort of go between third state, uh, sort of third state roles, um, back channels, et cetera. We cannot know this, but I'm quite, uh, convinced that these things happen as we speak. There is no dearth of third, third part counties that are offering their services. Uh, Turkey has been hosting talks. Um, Israel 
is there. China has chimed in, probably countless more. Uh, this is all good news. And uh, what I would have liked to know, if anyone has, has, has heard anything or even a rumor, is how often does Zelensky speak to uh, American authorities? That would be very interesting to know. How, because um, at some points they look like they are very well coordinated. At other points, there will be sort of, sort of changes of opinion between the two. How much of that is staged? How much of that is tactical? That's an interesting question. And uh, as, as, so, as a social scientist, I can't look between the lobes, people. But um, that would have been nice, wouldn't it? Mm -hmm. Well, we've got there's a there's a series of questions here. I'm just going to end with because I realize you do all have homes to go to, especially Johanna in in Finland, who I think is two hours ahead of us. So it's kind of going to be pretty late by the time you finish. But um, one question here. Uh, about the Chernobyl power cut, uh, might it have effects even in the next few days? Um, are nuclear facilities being directly targeted? Um, so that's a question about that, about nuclear. Uh, Duncan McIntosh wants uh, Lynn Jameson to give a view on this idea of a European defense organization and whether it could viably be non-nuclear armed, even though France would still be nuclear. Um, and just a couple of questions. David Somerville's asking, how can voices for conflict resolution be amplified? I guess perhaps there's a point there from Eva that some unamplified voices in the background might be useful. But um, do we need to have people beginning to talk about conflict resolution? When Eva put his head over the parapet on that one, he had a bad experience. Um, and let's just see one or two more. And then I'll ask each of our speakers to just pick one of these questions, if you can possibly keep yourself to one. Uh, China has the North as part of its Silk Road initiative. If it continues cooperating with Russia, will that affect its relations with other states? So there's, there's, there's plenty of points in there. Let's start, start with jo Johanna. Is there a point you want to pick up there from those that have just been asked? I actually, I wanted to say a few words about uh, these negotiations and, and conflict re resolution. What we are witnessing here, and this is something that I'm, I'm quite worried about, is that all those possible compromises that, uh, that Ukraine um, would sort of would be in a position to, to agree upon, they would mean that we would have to really seriously start rethinking the whole international order as we've known it. Because all those demands that Russia is now uh, putting forward, they all are, are really serious violations of um, of the uh, of the current international order, and I I'm particularly I mean we, when we talk about uh, Ukraine, I've seen the reports that perhaps they would be willing to uh, say no to uh, to NATO membership. I mean this would be a, a lot bigger issue than just Ukraine. We would talk about the whole principle of sovereignty being undermined. And, and I think this would sort of lead to a, a much bigger um, shift in, in, our, in our sort of thinking on, uh, on what actually, what, you know, what, what is uh, the role of 
for example, the uh, the UN and and the whole sort of stability of international order. And that's why when we discuss here in Finland, there has been many who've said that, okay, why, I mean, the solution would be just that um, Ukraine, um, you know, decides not to, not to ever join. And the same, same idea has been posed in several discussions on the European level, also in the US, this has been the sort of in the realist camp, something that has been um, proposed for a long time. Um, and I would be quite sort of skeptical and and quite reluctant to um, to accept that this is our this is the uh, the only only way way out. And the big question is also would it would it actually be enough Putin? I don't think it would be. I, th- I think there's a lot more that would would sort of then you know we just don't don't know currently. Someone was asking, is he a rational actor at the moment? I don't think we can rationally predict his um, his administration's uh, actions. Lynn, let's come to you. That that do you think there could be a European defense organization that's essentially non-nuclear? Um, obviously that's technically possible. I would prefer to see a strengthening of organizations that are not military. As you know, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe was heavily involved in 2014-2015 in trying to in the failed Minsk agreements, um, trying to, but they were the only serious attempt, in a sense, to to resolve this. It's, you know, there's a lot of discussion about that. It's not my field of expertise. It seems that they were not necessarily completely. Uh, well drafted, but they were they did involve all sides. There was discussion, and that was um, a European wide uh, security and cooperation arrangement. That um, I would like us to be learning to be better at diplomacy and discussion rather than having to cre- recreate new defence organisations. Is my feeling about it? Chernobyl is not well. I mean, obviously, it's the site of the accident. It's not alive power station, if it were, then the, lo- the loss of electricity would be incredibly serious because you need it for the cooling. Um, you both need it, you know, to constantly pump water through. A p- most forms of power stations is an essential part of cooling or, or, or even if it's gas cooling, um, as they are in, in this country, the you need, it, you need it connected to a grid that works and you need power to, to do all of the things that you need to do to keep it safe. Um, there, I believe, uh, as long as they can keep top, topping up water over, over uh, things that are in cooling ponds, it's not immediately cataclysmic. But what, of course, it requires is a, is a safety crew who are able to work, who are not exhausted, who are not bullied, who are not harassed, and can do their job. And that doesn't seem to be necessarily the situation that we're in. So it's not as if it's a safe thing um, at the moment, but I don't think it's the lack of electricity that's the major problem. Okay, and just Hansen, Eber, finally on any of those points that's be, that have been made. In fact, no, I I think you've summed up quite well, Leslie. I mean, there's a general debate I think throughout the the, the questions and comments about you know could the EU um, uh, be an effective uh, force, but by itself, if it was to set up its own defence organisation, that's the, the the central theme that's that's coming through. 
relationship between a potentially EU defence force and NATO? Again, in the realm of speculation, the whole idea of using live ammo next to a nuclear plant is interesting. And it could be one of those flukes of warfare, but it could also be that Russia wants to send a signal that it's a bit high-handed about its use of, 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 of nuclear capabilities. Uh, the, uh, the assassination of Litvinenko was, was made using polonium, which is a radioactive agent. So, and, and Putin has actually threatened to, uh, to use tactical nukes uh, three times now. So that's, that's, uh, this is what we're up against. And uh, I can't say I'm particularly happy at the thought. Basic problem when it comes to the new European order that we will see emerging now is that uh, it's an historical um, normalization. The historical pattern has been that Russia has been militarily strong and uh, good at disinformation and uh, intelligence work. So those many would see those as weapons of the weak, and that has been sort of juxtaposed to European dynamism in, 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 in economic and political models. So uh, what appears as military strength, I think, is a thin cover, a veneer, uh, over simply a lack to be politically and economically savvy. Sorry, Putin hasn't really done much to fix his economy, which is the basic problem. Even a a non-Marxist like me can see that. Just briefly, Eva, where do you think this is going now? Where's, Where's the war going in Ukraine? What moves could happen? will happen next if we're lucky putin has given up the plan to occupy the entire country and will end his war of aggression by taking some 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 territory and insisting on some kind of 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 uh, of, of neutral stance uh, that's the sort of, I, I can't see any more sort of positive scenario than that would it help then if if that was to happen would it help for ukraine to try and join the eu because it's not like the eu have fast tracked their membership application either? Well, van der Leiden have made sounds in that direction. But uh, what is being said in, in a peaked situation like this may or may not hold up. It would be unprecedented. And particularly with the bad experience with UK membership, I think Europeans will think once and twice and thrice before letting a country in without making sure that it's ready. Okay, well, look, thank you every, everyone so much uh, for, for just really broadening our minds on so many fronts tonight. Um, thanks to Independence Live that um, have streamed this out as well, to all the crowdfunders who've helped us put these events together. Um, we will be having another event around the time of the local elections here in Scotland, which will be looking at Nordic models of truly local democracy. But for the meantime, thanks to all our speakers tonight. Thanks so much, Hans Moritzen, Eva Neumann, Johanna Borelma and Lynn Jameson. And um, thank you very much, the Nordic Horizons team. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to the Scottish Independence Podcast for more great content. And please share. See you next month.